Hello, welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Shinu Chirakul, and I am a medical student at the Medical College of Georgia here in Augusta. On today's episode, we will be discussing failure to thrive in childhood. To help with our discussion, I am joined by Dr. Catherine McLeod and Dr. Rebecca Yang. Before we get started, could you both tell us a little bit about yourselves? Hey, yeah, it's great to be here. I'm Catherine McLeod, and I'm a pediatric hospitalist at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. As we will discuss, failure to thrive is a common admission diagnosis to my service, so I'm excited to address this topic today. Thanks, Shinu. I am Rebecca Yang, and I am a general pediatrician. I currently work in the outpatient clinic for the Division of Pediatric Gastroenterology. So failure to thrive is definitely a daily issue that I encounter in my clinic. It's also one of those bread and butter topics that every pediatrician really needs to know about. Wonderful. I'm glad you were here to discuss failure to thrive from both the outpatient and inpatient perspectives. On today's episode, our goal is to help listeners understand the diagnostic criteria for failure to thrive, the potential causes and risk factors, and finally, we will discuss treatment and management. So let's get started. Okay, let's first establish what we mean by Fair to Thrive, or FTT for short. Fair to Thrive is a state of insufficient caloric intake, which leads to inadequate or poor maintenance of growth. That's right. It's commonly found in early childhood and may represent an underlying systemic disease. However, failure to thrive in a developed country like the United States can be multifactorial. What I mean is that it can be due to a combination of medical, psychosocial, environmental, and genetic factors. Up to 10% of primary care visits deal with failure to thrive, while 5% of hospitalized children will also be diagnosed with it. One study I read found that among urban emergency departments, 15 to 30% of children receiving acute care have growth deficits. We actually don't really use the term failure to thrive in the clinical setting since it sounds so ambiguous and daunting for parents to hear. Instead, you'll hear physicians use poor weight gain or growth faltering. I tend to use poor rate or velocity of growth. But for convenience sake, we will use FTT on the podcast today. Yes, an important message we want to help our listeners understand is that in most cases, failure to thrive is a preventable condition if identified early, but inaction can prove fatal in in severe cases. Yes, as pediatricians, we are very growth focused, especially during the early years. That's because appropriate growth is a reflection of nutritional intake, which leads to optimized overall development of the child. And research demonstrates that the type of nutritional intake, even in the first year of life, could increase or decrease the risk of developing certain adult onset conditions like diabetes, obesity, and even heart disease. So Dr. Yang, how do you decide when a child is considered failure to thrive? The American Academy of Pediatrics, or AAP, have several criteria to help providers diagnose failure to thrive in childhood. This includes having a weight or height less than the 5th percentile for age, or a drop in weight more than two major percentiles, or a body mass index for age that is less than the 5th percentile. A child meeting any one of those criteria should be a red flag for medical providers. But remember that one measurement of weight, height, or head circumference is not enough to diagnose failure to thrive. A growth chart is helpful to monitor growth over time and quickly identify any significant deviations. 
Did you know that there are actually several growth charts available for pediatricians to track growth? Shinu, why don't you discuss some of the main growth charts available for use? Sure. Most people are familiar with the growth charts published by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. These charts are divided by gender for kids older than two years of age. For children less than two years of age, we use growth charts by the World Health Organization, also divided by gender. These charts take into account the variability of different people from different backgrounds by using data points on populations in six or seven areas of the world. There are also even more specialized growth charts, which include charts for preterm infants and for chromosomal disorders like trisomy 21 and Turner's syndrome, as well as growth charts for cerebral palsy. Using the correct growth chart is important to monitor growth appropriately. So then how do we interpret growth charts? As Dr. McLeod mentioned, when tracking a child's height and weight, one low percentile or point is not enough to diagnose a child with failure to thrive. Instead, the child should be followed with multiple visits over time. Growth charts are quick ways to help providers and parents identify growth deviations visually, but be careful about how you interpret a growth chart. Remember, some children are just below the fifth percentile, and that's just as part of their natural body size. So what you mean is that if a child is tracking along a curve, that's okay. The child just may be smaller compared to his or her peers due to constitutional delay. Exactly. For these children, as long as they are following a curve and not falling off of it, they have a normal growth velocity. Children with FTT, on the other hand, will demonstrate a plateauing or a fall in velocity of growth. That's helpful to keep in mind. Let's keep our discussion going with the clinical case. We have Katie, a 20-month-old girl who presents to clinic for a well check exam. She has not been seen in your clinic since she was 9 months old due to a lapse in insurance coverage. As part of the visit, you review the growth chart with mom where you notice that her weight percentile when she was 9 months old was at the 25th percentile. However, today, her weight has fallen to the 5th percentile. The child appears thin, but seems to be demonstrating appropriate developmental milestones for her age. On physical exam, Katie begins to cry, and you notice her mom quickly becomes overwhelmed and unsure what to do. You console Katie, and she slowly calms down. Great case, she knew. What are some key points that grab your attention in this case? Well, first of all, This child has been lost to follow-up since she was nine months old due to an insurance lapse. This means that she has missed out on some important well checks at 12, 15, 18 months when immunizations are given. Several developmental screens are performed during these visits, not to mention the missed opportunities for counseling regarding appropriate nutritional intake. So really, essentially, no one has been monitoring this child's growth. That's right. Any drop in growth percentile, especially within a short period of time, should raise some concern, but a drop in more than two curves on the growth chart needs more evaluation. Once I've identified that there is a growth problem, what's next? As we mentioned, poor growth can be multifactorial, so broaden your differential before you begin making assumptions. Traditionally, the causes of poor growth have been divided into two broad categories, the first being organic causes, meaning an underlying disease that impairs proper absorption, versus non-organic causes, which refer to social or environmental factors. We can also split the causes of poor growth into three categories. First would be inadequate caloric intake. 
simply the child isn't eating enough. Second would be inadequate caloric absorption due to an underlying disease. This could be like something like celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease. And finally, poor growth could be a result of excessive caloric expenditure. That means that the child is burning more calories than their intake. This happens for kids with an underlying medical condition, such as a cardiac, lung, or neurologic disorder. She knew. What type of questions would you like to ask Katie's mom to assess if this child is meeting caloric needs? Well, I would start off first with the general nutritional intake history. This includes asking how often Katie eats in a day. Is it three meals a day? Are any meals skipped? Is she snacking throughout the day? And then, of course, I would ask what types of food and drinks are being offered to her. How much of her meal does she complete? Does she eat everything, half of it, just a few bites? How is the food prepared? I want to know if the food is instant, microwavable, drive through or home-cooked. All of this information gives us insight into how balanced Katie's nutritional intake is. Excellent. Feeding history should be routine for all visits. For infants who haven't started solids, you should clarify if the infant is breastfeeding, bottle feeding with pumped breast milk, taking formula, or a combination of all. If mom is breastfeeding, ask about any changes that have occurred. Examples include new medicines that could affect milk supply, or has the baby become more distractible recently during feeds? Has mom returned to work that may affect her milk supply? Basic stool and urine output also indicates if the child is feeding often enough. What else should you ask about, Shinu? It's also important to ask how often the child is being fed and how much does the infant take in. First-time moms may not be able to recognize hunger cues for their infants. Yes, it's also helpful to discuss feeding patterns. How long does it take to drink a bottle? Do they sweat or tire easily when feeding? This could be due to excessive caloric expenditure, like I mentioned before, because of an underlying cardiac issue if they take forever to feed or tire out unusually fast. Speaking of cardiac issues, the child's own medical history is definitely important. Children with congenital anomalies like a cleft palate or those who were born prematurely are at a higher risk of having swallowing difficulties or poor oral motor function. I worry about a child like our patient Katie, who has missed so many well checks. She will also have missed screenings for developmental delays that may diagnose disorders that would affect intake. You should also ask about recurrent infections, including ear, sinus, and respiratory infections. This could indicate some type of immunodeficiency or genetic condition associated with poor growth. I would also ask about if there are any signs of swallowing difficulty or if there are large amounts of vomiting after feeding. If there is a lot of vomiting, the infant is obviously not keeping in what it's taking in. This could be sometimes due to overfeeding, reflux, or even a milk protein intolerance. For the older child, are they distracted? Is a TV on during meals? Do they sit down for meals? Or are there even scheduled meal times? Or is this a child that grazes or snacks all day? She knew. What else should we ask about? Well, what about family history? I would think about asking family history of inflammatory bowel disease, cystic fibrosis, or celiac disease, all of which are associated with malabsorption and would be helpful to know. Also asking if parents had any growth failures or delays as children themselves may be helpful to recognize familial growth patterns. Good point. I always ask about mom and dad's height. 
to get at familial short stature. Other questions to ask about the family include, are there any concerns about intellectual disability in the parents, which might affect their ability to feed the child? A gentler way to ask this question is asking how far did the parents go in school? Don't shy away from also assessing for history of depression that might affect a mother in the postpartum stage and certainly affect her ability to adequately feed her child. So Shinu, tell me more about our patient Katie. You mentioned that the mom seemed overwhelmed when she started crying. Sure. Katie's mom tearfully shares that the family has been going through a hard time due to a divorce. Financial support has been limited, especially due to there being two other children at home. She's getting some help from the grandparents, but it's still not enough. Mom tries to cook dinner at home while breakfast and lunch are taken care of at the school or daycare. Just as important as medical risk factors are the presence of psychosocial issues. Environmental and social issues have a major role in the likelihood for a child to have failure to thrive. Financial stressors are potential major sources of inadequate caloric intake. In addition, people may not realize this, but for many children, the only consistent meal a child gets is provided at the school. So these kids may possibly just be getting two good meals a day and only on the weekdays. That's right. If a child is found to be living in a stressful environment, the risk of fear to thrive increases exponentially. This could include children who are victims of abuse, violence, poverty, or parental mental illness. However, any overall instability can affect proper nutritional intake. Psychosocial conditions can be a sensitive topic, but you have to ask or you won't know. Be straightforward and specific. Again, ask about living conditions, family dynamics, financial status. Ask about family stressors that might impair the ability to support the needs of the child. Ask about food availability. Many families may not share this information unless you ask directly. Uncomfortable questions specifically about alcohol, drugs, and physical and emotional abuse should also be addressed. Other questions also include new changes that could affect the child's eating behavior, such as a new baby, moving, military deployment, or death in the family. And don't forget about transportation difficulties that make it hard for these families to access food. That's right. I've been reading about this concept of food deserts. Food deserts are geographic areas where people don't have access to affordable, healthy food options, especially fruit and vegetables. The presence of a food desert could be due to a variety of reasons, but it's usually due to an absence of grocery store within walking distance. Yes, children are a highly vulnerable population for food insecurity or inadequate food supply at home due to social and economic hardship. As a provider, it's also important to know about local resources to help these families. There are some great programs out there, such as community food banks and government assistance through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, as well as Women, Infant, and Children Program, also known as WIC. This is all such great information. Let me quickly summarize what we have discussed so far for the listeners. A child's height and weight should be regularly reviewed to identify irregularities. Causes of failure to thrive can be organic due to an underlying disease state or can be inorganic due to psychosocial or environmental causes. It can even be a combination of the two. To help narrow the differential diagnosis, you can divide the causes into three categories. Inadequate caloric intake, inadequate caloric absorption, and increased caloric expenditure. A detailed history includes feeding, medical, family, and social histories. 
All right. So if we suspect a child with FTT, what features would we expect on physical exam? So a head-to-toe physical exam is important. There are some key physical findings that will be apparent the minute you walk into the room. You should know whether the child appears proportional or disproportional. Children with failure to thrive may have heads that appear larger than the rest of their body. Look for any dysmorphic features that would indicate a chromosomal abnormality that could be associated with FTT. As we mentioned earlier, check for a cleft palate. This sometimes does get missed in the newborn nursery. Observe for signs of increased work of breathing, wheezing, cyanosis, clubbing of the fingers. Document any new or persistent murmurs. You can check for hepatosplenomegaly or any abdominal masses. Consider also signs of neglect such as bruising or burns. And observe for overall tone and delay in developmental milestones for the younger child that would impair appropriate feeding. What I find very helpful, especially in infants, is to watch them breastfeed or take a bottle to observe for any swallowing or feeding irregularities. Notice if there's any choking or coughing. Is there a poor latch to the breast or bottle nipple? Is there a lot of milk dribbling out the side of the baby's mouth? Does the baby start strong and then tire as the feed goes on? And also, while you're watching the feed, pay attention to the parent-child interaction. Is the parent looking at the child while they feed? Is there bonding going on or is there absence of emotion? Oh, wow. Good to know. All right. So what about labs and imaging studies? Do we need those to diagnose FTT? Good question. So that depends on the clinical history and duration of the child's poor growth. The American Academy of Pediatrics actually recommends that once you believe a child has failure to thrive based on your history and physical exam, you should go straight to intervention. So you don't really necessarily need to get labs and imaging before nutritional intervention. That's right. In one retrospective study in the Archives of Disease and Childhood, less than 2% of hospitalized children for failure to thrive had labs that were helpful with the diagnosis. The same study also showed that less than 1% of failure to thrive admissions had a lab abnormality that contributed to the diagnosis. Of those admitted for failure to thrive, 33% ended up with no diagnosis. 32% had failure to thrive due to environmental causes, and 31% of cases were due to organic causes. Of the organic category, 66% had either reflux or nonspecific diarrhea. Since we see excessive juice drinking in our own population, I have always postulated that juice was at least one reason for the diarrhea mentioned in this study. So remember to make sure to address the liquid diet of these children. So Dr. Yang, let's say that organic disease has been ruled out and a patient's poor growth is due to inadequate calories. Now what? The goal for these patients is to optimize growth. That means helping to improve caloric intake with the goals of, quote, catch-up growth until the child reaches a more consistent rate of growth pattern. When discussing intake, I recommend not just focusing on getting more calories in, but also helping families create a healthier eating and feeding environment long-term. Okay, can you clarify a little bit more? Sure. One of the key things to start off with is education on appropriate portion sizes and types of food. Avoid grazing. That means avoid constant snacking and drinking liquids between meals. Frequent snacking promotes fullness, but with empty calories. 
This could lead them towards the opposite end of the spectrum of obesity if the child is constantly snacking. If available, a registered pediatric dietitian can also provide additional guidance for the family. I also encourage families to establish a mealtime routine. This includes having the child, if old enough, to be part of the setting of the table, such as laying out the silverware or napkins. This is especially helpful for the picky child to get them involved. All meals and snacks should be offered in a high chair or at the table to promote good eating habits and healthy family time. And minimize distractions. Put the phone away and turn off the TV. So kids can also go with their parents to the grocery store or farmer's market to pick out foods. And that's another way to get them involved and interested in healthy eating. These are such great tips. I know we discussed that the goal is to reach a consistent upward rate of growth. Could you explain what that means? There are several published guidelines out there on expected weight a child should gain based on their age. So on average, infants typically gain about 20 to 30 grams a day between 0 to 3 months old and then 15 to 20 grams a day between 3 to 6 months old. And then they will grow about an average of 10 grams per day between 6 to 12 months old and 5 grams per day during 12 to 24 months old. For older children, growth typically increases 7 to 10 grams per day in both girls and boys. What do we expect for catch-up growth during nutritional intervention? For catch-up growth, this means a goal of two to three times the normal expected rate until the child has sustained appropriate and consistent rate of growth. And what sources of nutrition should be recommended for children? The source depends on the age. For infants, nutrition comes from breast milk or formula. As we discussed, evaluating breastfeeding and formula preparations is required to make sure mom is feeding her baby correctly. Nursing should be at least every two to three hours in newborns, while formula feeding at least every three to four hours. For the older toddler or child, nutrition will largely be based on the food plate picture we are familiar with, meaning older children should be getting their fill of fruits and vegetables, grains, proteins, and dairy. The proportions will vary depending on which source you look at, but according to the USDA's MyPlate organization, in teenagers, grains should make 30% of the plate, 40% of the vegetables, 10% of the fruits, and 20% of the protein, along with a glass of milk or a cup of yogurt. Dr. Yang, what are some other things that primary care providers can recommend in regards to nutrition for catch-up growth? That depends on clinical signs and symptoms present, and again, the age of the patient. For the infant, obviously we can't make an infant drink large amounts of formula, but we can increase the caloric density per ounce to help with growth with specialized formulas. If an infant has signs and symptoms of a cow's milk allergy, then you should consider an extensively hydrolyzed or hypoallergenic amino acid-based formula. A breastfeeding mother would need to remove milk from her diet if you were concerned about a cow's milk allergy. And how about for an older child? For the older child, incorporating higher caloric foods into the diet would be helpful. And I don't mean greasy cheeseburgers every day, but foods rich in protein like fish, beans, or nuts like cashews and almonds. You can add healthy oils like olive and canola oil when cooking to avoid trans fats. Whole grains like whole wheat pasta or breads are also great. What are your thoughts about high-calorie shakes and formulas like Pediasure? High caloric formulas for older children are an option, but these should be temporary while we work on catch-up growth. 
I always emphasize that if a child is developmentally appropriate, I never want them to rely on the formula as a replacement for meals. So these high calorie formulas should only be treated as a supplement. Is that right? Exactly. Since a child can get very full with these high calorie formulas, I recommend splitting the goal amount into smaller portions throughout the day and offering the drinks after meals, not before or close to meals. Okay, so once we suggest these treatment options, for how long should we be following the child as an outpatient? Follow-up visits should be made every one to two weeks for infants and monthly for older kids to document the child's progress. But frequency of visits also depends on the individual case. Sometimes if I am concerned about the social situation, I may have them come in more frequently. And how much growth are we looking for before safely saying the child is going on the right track? Usually sustained growth for at least four to nine months with the weight and height measurements being above the 10th percentile is an indication of effective intervention. So what if we do all of these nutritional interventions and the child continues to have poor weight gain or even weight loss? If initial outpatient treatment does not work, then hospitalization may be required. Other indications for hospitalization include severe malnutrition, dehydration, or concerns for the child's safety, or extremely poor parent management. Dr. McLeod, what are the benefits of admitting the child for failure to thrive? Inpatient admission is an opportunity to address the issue as a multidisciplinary team. This may include subspecialists, a speech pathologist to evaluate swallowing function, occupational and physical therapists to evaluate for other developmental deficits, a dietitian to ensure appropriate nutritional intake, and possibly social work to assess resources. Another benefit is that you get to observe the patient-child interaction to rule out psychosocial concerns. Would it be appropriate now to get labs during this admission? Good question. If a short-term hospital stay fails, then further labs and imaging is required, as this may indicate a severe undiagnosed disease that is causing failure to thrive. So I've learned a little bit about refeeding syndrome during medical school. Is this something we should be worried about? If the child has not had sufficient caloric intake for an extended period of time, We should be cautious about refeeding syndrome, especially in the first few days or weeks of refeeding. While rare, it's something the hospitalist should monitor for. Shinu, what do you know about refeeding syndrome? Well, when a child has a sudden rapid increase in caloric intake, usually in the form of enteral or parenteral feeding, this can potentially cause a surge in insulin secretion. This leads to hypoglycemia and low extracellular concentrations of electrolytes like magnesium, phosphate, and potassium. That's right. This can lead to seizures, muscle weakness, or fatigue, and can further progress into impaired cardiac and respiratory functions. So reintroduction of calories need to be monitored to prevent refeeding syndrome with close monitoring of labs if fair to thrive is very significant or chronic. What are the long-term effects or delayed or no intervention for failure to thrive? There are certainly negative and irreversible long-term effects. These include intellectual and behavioral deficits, diminished weight and height in adulthood, and overall decline in general health, especially immunity. In severe cases, failure to thrive can even lead to death. This is why it's so important that we do a good job educating parents and children the best we can. 
Most of this teaching will be done in primary care settings, and so pediatricians prove to be the best first-line defense to avoid hospital admissions for failure to thrive. So when should primary care providers refer to a specialist for failure to thrive? When interventions and evaluation have failed to demonstrate improvement, it would be helpful to get other subspecialists involved. If both weight and height have fallen, consider a combined approach that may require genetic, gastrointestinal, and an endocrine evaluation. That's right. If the child has a normal weight but low stature, think endocrine or hormonal etiology. If there's also associated dysmorphism, don't forget genetic causes. In special cases, a discussion on alternative means of nutritional intake, including a nasogastric tube temporarily or even a gastrostomy tube for more long-term feeding, may need to be addressed for severe cases. Wow, it's already time to wrap up our episode for today. Let's summarize the key points we discussed. To diagnose a child with FTT, we have to track their growths with charts put out by the CDC or the WHO. Getting a very detailed history is key with FGT, and this includes medical, family, social, and feeding histories. Causes of failure to thrive can be organic, meaning due to an underlying disease state, or inorganic, meaning a psychosocial or environmental cause. Most likely, it's a combination. To narrow the differential diagnosis, you can divide causes into three categories. Inadequate caloric intake, inadequate caloric absorption, or increased caloric expenditure. Once you know the child has fair to thrive, start treatment right away. Running labs and ordering imaging is not necessary unless the initial interventions fail. A multidisciplinary approach is helpful to ensure that appropriate growth is recovered for severe cases. Well, that was so wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. McLeod and Dr. Yang, for taking the time to sit with me and the listeners to talk to us about FTT. Thanks. I really enjoyed our discussion today. Thanks, she knew I learned some new things also. An additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Pierce, who provided peer review for today's discussion. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Failure to Thrive from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. The clinical vignette case presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Follow the link in our show notes for free SCME credit. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.